Well, good morning. It is very good to be back with you again. It's actually um, four years since I was standing in this position. Um, and it's nearly, would you believe it, for those of you who are around this long, it's nearly a quarter of a century since I darkened the door of the, of the old community centre in Craigie. So it is wonderful to be back with you again uh, this morning. Uh, please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I am the greatest. I shook up the world. I'm the prettiest thing that ever lived. I'm sure you know who spoke those words uh, now nearly 60 years ago, in fact. Uh, Muhammad Ali, or as he was known then, Cassius Clay. They were spoken in Miami Beach on the 25th of February, 1964, just after he had beaten Sonny Liston, the world heavyweight boxing champion. And there's no doubt that Muhammad Ali was one of the, the greatest boxers, the greatest boxing champion the world has ever seen. There have been many debates, of course, about who was the greatest, uh, but certainly Ali's claims have to be considered. They can't be dismissed. He may have been bragging, but at least he had some grounds for making those claims. Now, notwithstanding, uh, my nickname, as Nigel reminded you, of Rocky Rolston. <laughs> if I were to make such a claim, you would think I was either joking or delusional. What you would not do is to consider the likelihood that I was being correct in what I'd said. Well, what we're going to read in this passage this morning is one of the most extraordinary statements that has ever been made, one of the most outrageous claims that has ever been made, and yet one that we cannot possibly ignore. So reading then from Luke chapter 4, if you, turn, if you begin with verse 14, verse 14 of Luke chapter 4, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I want to look at this uh, passage in the life of Jesus under three headings. The first I've titled Reading, the second Revelation, and the third Rejection. Reading, Revelation, Rejection. First of all then, reading. The reading from Isaiah in the synagogue. Luke is a most engaging writer. Uh, we know that not only did he write the Gospel of Luke, he also wrote the book of Acts. But Luke had not known Jesus while he was on earth. He relied on stories that had been told to him, some if not most of which were probably told to him by eyewitnesses. People who had seen Jesus perform miracles, who had heard his parables, who had witnessed the crucifixion, who had seen the risen Christ at first hand. And so far in the Gospel of Luke, we, uh, what Luke has done, he's told us a story of the birth of Jesus, his visit to the temple when he was 12 years old, his anointing with the Holy Spirit. And Luke's emphasis is very much on Jesus as the Son of God. The passage immediately before the one I've just read looks at the temptation of Jesus. Now we've moved on in time, maybe as much as a year on from that, where Luke considers Jesus' ministry in Galilee, his home turf, the place he knew well where he had grown up. And verses 14 and 15, Luke gives us a very quick overview of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, how he had returned to the Galilee in the power of the Spirit, how reports of his activities had spread widely, how he had taught in the synagogues and been well received. Now, a synagogue, as I'm sure many of you will, will know, most of you will know, was a meeting place, a place of instruction, a place of worship. By Jesus' day, it was a well-established part of Jewish religious observance. And a service 
uh, the synagogue service on the Sabbath day included prayer, readings from Scripture, from what we call the Old Testament, of course, and teaching. It wasn't like the temple, there were no sacrifices there. It was a place for worship and instruction, a place to learn. And we read many times in the Gospels of Jesus' of visits to synagogues. But interestingly, this is the only place where we're told that it was his custom, his usual practice. Come the Sabbath, Jesus was in the synagogue, listening to the reading and preaching of God's word and taking part in the service himself. The man who understood the Bible better than anyone was present for public worship. I think there's a tremendous challenge for us in that. Are we making the most of those opportunities where we can come together to worship and to uh, be taught from God's word? Now, we know that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, but he'd been brought up in Nazareth. And back then, Nazareth was a small town in Galilee, It was about 15 miles or so from the Sea of Galilee. It may have had 500 inhabitants. It was a sort of place where everyone would have known everyone else. Now on that particular day, service started, prayers and readings had been taking place, and it reached the point in the service when it was time to read from the prophets. And the scroll containing the words of Isaiah was handed to Jesus. Now we've already read, as we've already read, verses 14 and 15, Jesus was by this time a well-known preacher. He was someone who had a, a reputation as a gifted and knowledgeable teacher. And so there was nothing unusual or out of the ordinary, about Jesus being invited to read and to speak on this occasion. Anyone the synagogue leaders felt was qualified to do so could be invited to speak, to contribute to the service. It seems that while he was given the, the, the text of Isaiah, it was Jesus himself who chose the particular passage that he read. We read, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. He stood to read. In fact, uh, it seems that everyone stood for the reading of scripture in the synagogue. Preaching was when you were seated, but reading uh, was for when you, you had to stand. He stood for reading, sat for preaching. Jesus fixed on the words of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. His reading was actually very short. In the translation that I've used, it's only 53 words. Let me read them again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. 
And after the reading, Jesus handed the scroll back to the synagogue attendant and resumed his seat. So far, nothing out of the ordinary. But as Luke tells us, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You can imagine the sense of anticipation. They'd never heard someone read like this before. With authority, with understanding, this man really knew what he was reading. And it's impossible not to get excited about what Jesus has just read. This is one of the the great messianic passages of the Old Testament. And now the people were waiting to hear what he had to say. The proverbial pin could be heard to drop. So we looked at the, the reading from Isaiah by Jesus. Let's go on to the second part. Revelation. Jesus reveals his true identity. Recently someone I knew and respected passed away. Peter Harbison was a, a highly acclaimed archaeologist who wrote the definitive guide to Irish archaeological monuments. He was quite an outgoing character, flamboyant even. And at his funeral funeral service, his son related a story about how his father had gone to look for a particular monument that somehow or other had been left out of his book. And on his way back from finding that monument, he happened to meet a couple out for a walk and they asked him what he was doing. When he gave them a a brief explanation of uh, where he had been, they replied, oh, isn't it in the Harbison? He replied, I am the Harbison and it will be in the next edition. And I waited to see him here with Jesus. When the people arrived that day at the synagogue, they had no idea about the true identity of the person who would be reading and preaching to them. Well, there is seen that Jesus was a well-known, respected preacher in Galilee, someone who'd gone on a preaching tour of the synagogue, someone who had been glorified by all. And now in the synagogue in Nazareth, he was about to speak, about to teach them. He's read from the scriptures, and now he's about to preach to them, to teach them, to talk to them about the passage he has just read. And he starts off by saying something that is absolutely earth-shattering. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The passage that Jesus read looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Savior who had been promised throughout the Old Testament. The people had been waiting expectantly for this Savior, longing for him to come, praying that he would come. And now Jesus is saying he is the Messiah. He is the one 
that they had been waiting for. The people gathered that day in the synagogue in Nazareth have just heard the Messiah speak to them. Let's consider the words that Jesus read from Isaiah, for they are significant. They don't just happen to be the words he read. They're deeply significant, for they reveal the mission of the Messiah. They tell us what he would do and for whom he would do it. In thinking of this, let's note first of all those for whom the Messiah came. The poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. In other words, the destitute, the distressed, the helpless, the outcasts of the world. And what did Jesus bring them? What did the Messiah bring them? Good news for the poor. Liberty for the captives and the oppressed. The restoration of sight for the blind. The last time I was speaking here back in, in 2019, I preached from Psalm 146, another one of those great uh, passages that points to the coming Messiah. And there we read a series of powerful statements. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And we need to be careful, of course, in the way we approach passages such as this. When we read these words, both in Psalm 146, both here in Luke, and Isaiah, and elsewhere, we need to bear in mind that the situations have a spiritual dimension. They're not simply about physical ailments or material difficulties. If we take blindness... Their spiritual blindness. But God can open our eyes to the truth. Prisoners can be those who are bound by the enslaving power of sin. But through our Savior, they can be set free. The poor here are not those who are materially poor, but the spiritually poor. But more than that, they are people who understand the utter destitution of their situation. Their powerless, powerlessness to deliver themselves from their condition. They know that there is nothing they can do in and of themselves to overcome their spiritual poverty, their spiritual unworthiness. But what can the Messiah offer them? Well, we're told... Good news. The Messiah proclaims to them the gospel, the good news of forgiveness of sins, of being made right with God. And how can anyone not get excited at that? Luke often relates Jesus' encounters with those who have been rejected by the world, looked down on, scoffed at, ridiculed, maligned, but yet who understand their spiritual need. Think of the story in Luke chapter 7 where we read of Jesus being invited to the home of a Pharisee. And there, 
a woman coming in, in tears, kneeling at his feet, washing his feet with her tears and her hair and pouring ointment on his feet. His Pharisee host was unimpressed. He thought to himself, well, if Jesus really is who he says he is, he would surely know what sort of person this is. But this woman recognized her spiritual need. And what were Jesus' final words to her? Your faith has saved you. The people in the synagogue that day had their own ideas about what the Messiah would do. They were expecting an earthly king. Someone who would drive out their oppressors, the Romans. Someone who would re-establish the kingdom. But the kingdom Jesus rules over is a spiritual kingdom. He reigns in the hearts of those who have placed their trust in him. Do you remember the two old guys, Statler and Waldorf, who sat in the theatre balcony in the Muppet Show, offering a critique on what they had just seen? Often they would start off positively and end up highly negatively. One exchange between them goes, that was wonderful, bravo, I loved it, ah, it was great. Well, it was pretty good. Well, it wasn't bad. There were parts of it that weren't very good. It could have been a lot better. I didn't really like it. It was pretty terrible. It was bad. It was awful. Well, scenes like that are meant to be humorous, pointing fun at the, the fickleness of humanity. But what we now read in Luke is, is not funny. It's tragic. After revelation, we have rejection. Jesus reveals who he is, and he's rejected. And yet the initial response to Jesus that day was one of amazement. It says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Jesus had a way of speaking that astonished them. They'd never heard anything like this before. And they were asking each other, is this not Joseph's son? Now, there are two ways of looking at the question they posed. The first is that the people had a, a sense of wonder that this was one of their own. The other way of looking at it is that they were, they were sneering, contemptuous. In Matthew's account of this episode, they ask, is this not the carpenter's son? Maybe what we're seeing is one more thin to the other. Initial wonder, turning into scorn, derision, even ridicule. And Jesus knew exactly what was going through their heads. He knew what was in their hearts. And anticipating what they might say, he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. 
What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, you really are who you say you are. Prove it. Do some of your mighty deeds here. Remember, we know who you are. You grew up here. You're one of us. You might have impressed those people over in Capernaum. Well, now, give us a miracle. But Jesus knew that proof was not the issue. That even if he had performed some miracle before their eyes, they would not have believed who he was. He said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus followed this up by drawing attention to two uh, passages from the Old Testament which involved prophets who had been rejected by their own people. One of the stories concerns Elijah and the widow of Zarephath and the other Elisha and Naaman the Syrian general with leprosy. Now you can read these stories for yourself in First uh, and Second Kings, but briefly what they show is that God's grace and mercy have never been limited geographically or to one group of people. But they've always been for those who recognize their spiritual destitution, their spiritual unworthiness. The widow of Zarephath and Sidon and Naaman were very different in many respects. The widow was someone who was in absolute and utter material poverty. Naaman, on the other hand, was rich and powerful. But what they had in common was that they both realized that they themselves were utterly incapable of doing anything about the hopelessness of their situations. The only thing they could do was to put their trust in God. These outsiders, these outcasts, had realized where they had to place their trust. Now, hearing these stories lifts a hatred of the people of Nazareth towards Jesus to a whole new level. Who does he think he is? Is he saying that a leprous Syrian and a Sidonian widow are better than us? More worthy of God's mercy than us? These stories were absolutely crushing to their pride to their sense of self-righteousness. And the response was now much more than simply dismissing his words, scoffing at his origins, lampooning him for what he had said. It was outright fury. Verse 28, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. It was quite a turnaround. In the space of one sermon, they had gone from marveling at his words to hating him. In fact, wanting to murder him. They rose from their seats, 
drove them out of Nazareth. They drove them towards the brow of the hill with the intention of throwing them off the precipice to his death. But Jesus evaded his would-be killers. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. Miraculously, he had escaped. It was not yet his time to die. So we've had the reading from Isaiah. We have the revelation, Jesus revealing who he is and revealing what his mission would be and rejection. The people having this amazing privilege and rejecting Jesus as Messiah. In conclusion then, what can we learn from this passage? I have a few brief suggestions. First of all, very simply, we must believe that Jesus is who he says he is. There can be no debate. Simply to say that we admire Jesus as a, as a good teacher, as someone who gave excellent advice, who was clearly a gifted preacher, who was a good moral example for us to follow. None of those is good enough. There are many who will hold Jesus up as a, a model of humanity, someone to try to emulate. But that's as far as they will go in acknowledging who he is. But Jesus is clear, not just here, but in many other passages. He is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior. Secondly, consider his message. Messiah came to claim the good news, forgiveness and freedom from the guilt of sin. Can there be any better news than that? Do we recognize our need, our spiritual need? Are we prepared to admit that there is nothing in and of ourselves that can make us right with God? Or are we like those who rejected Jesus at Nazareth? Too full of our own self-righteousness. Too proud to admit our need of a saviour. Finally, I've been talking about what Jesus read and Jesus said. But intriguingly, there's something that he didn't read. If you compare the, the actual words of Isaiah 61 with Luke chapter 4, you'll notice that Jesus stopped his reading midway through a sentence. He stopped at, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year is not a 365-day year, but it's representing a period of time. The year of the Lord's favor. But he didn't finish verse 2 of chapter 61 of Isaiah. The next part of that verse reads, and the day of vengeance of our God. So it reads, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, it's not that Jesus did not <coughs> believe in the day of vengeance or, or the day of judgment, and that explains why he left it out. 
We read elsewhere in the Gospels where Jesus does talk about God's judgment. But here he wants to talk about God's favour. And it's available now. The year of the Lord's favour has arrived. Notice that the first word that he says to him after the reading is, Today, here and now, what the people waiting for had been waiting for for centuries had arrived. The year of the Lord's favour is here. In his first coming, Jesus came to proclaim the good news, to reveal himself as saviour, to die and to be raised again. When he comes again, it will be to judge. But that is in the future. John 12, verse 47, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The first coming ushered in a time for salvation, not judgment. And in an amazing way, we are still living in the year of the Lord's favour. We are still living in a time of God's grace. And meeting here this morning, we are enjoying the year of the Lord's favour. Thanks to Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. Let's really think about that and what it means for each of us. We can't ignore it. Praise be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.